There's a place here at the table Your coats go by the door You can kick your shoes off in that pile on the floor I hope you wore elastic Cause your waistband's gonna get tight Take time's done, we're having a night Hi guys, I'm Ari And I'm Sophie, and you're listening to Having a Night, a podcast dedicated to reviving the lost art of the dinner party. Woo-woo! It's really feeling more lost than usual these days. It's been so long since anyone has thrown a proper dinner party. I'm scared we'll forget how. Well, thank God we've got this podcast to listen to. You're right. But I agree, and I keep on thinking, I mean, this will be fun to do, actually, maybe in like a month or if there's not a second wave would be to do like, what is your first dinner party back going to be? Yeah. Who's going to be there? What are you going to cook? How are you going to set the table? But it feels like we're still a little too much in this to be fantasizing about that yet. Yeah. We might have to frame it as a fantasy. Yes, exactly. But I agree. I mean, it really is. It's like just been so long since I've sat around a table with a group that wasn't another family Mm-hmm. And that wasn't outdoors, right? Like just since I've been like, oh, this is my friend from here. And this is so-and-so from, well, you know what I mean. Of course. Just these little casual social dalliances, just like life as a social being, I've completely taken for granted. I also think it's kind of okay that the dinner party is on such a hiatus because like, what is there to talk about right now that's not political or COVID related. Like, it feels like the, the breadth of our conversations has shrunk so much. Well, that's depressing. Yeah. But do you know what I mean? It's like, I, th- I think it's that thing where a friend calls you who you haven't spoken to and it's like, how are you? And it's sort of like, I'm okay. And then it just sort of hangs there. <laughs> that's what I think book clubs are taking off. Ooh, Maybe that's we should start cute. having a night book club. Ooh, we could start a having a night recipe club. And oh my God, I, I'm coming up with this right now. <laughs> We could do the whatever we're cooking that week. Like if we make a video, we could do yeah. like a some kind of club about it. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. This could we'll be figured out. Let's table exactly. it. So on to the important things. Obviously, what did you eat this week? Okay. The uh, Chris's family, the family I've been living with, did the sweetest thing for me. They've been, I feel like people have had birthdays over the past five months. People have had like family members come to visit or, or social distance with us. So they were like, I guess, wanted to surprise me and do something sweet because uh, I hadn't had any of those things. And so I come down for dinner the other night and they have a big Chicago flag up and they ordered a Chicago style hot dog making kit from Portillo's. Oh my God. And I have a little, I'll post it. I have like a little Portillo's like chef hat that came with it. That is so cute. Yeah. So I was thinking I've got to do a little story on, on a Chicago. Finally, I, I keep teasing it, but I've got to do the Chicago style hot dog story on Instagram. Oh, well, can I ha- give a suggestion? Since you are going to Chicago next week, why doesn't our episode next week be Chicago foods? Oh, We said that we were going to do an episode and we didn't do it. So why don't we do it? That's a great idea. Did I talk about this lobster pasta that I made last week? Oh, no. Okay. Okay. All right, let me hit you with my lobster pasta. Um, We got, okay, so we were in Maine. As you guys know, we came back on Saturday. So we had linguine and we got already shelled lobsters, which in Maine, wow. I mean, a one pound lobster is $4. What? No, no. That's crazy. That's That's crazy. You shouldn't have said that on there. That's so I'm sorry. It was already pretty late and we knew that we didn't want to cook the lobster and shell it and everything because we didn't really have time before we were eating. But I had these beautiful cherry tomatoes. We got a half pound of shelled cooked lobster, just like at the random grocery store where the lobstermen bring their fresh lobsters. Wow. <laughs> what a what a place. What a state. So I had these cherry tomatoes, which I put into olive oil. So I cooked them so that their juices sort of ran out so that they just got like a little bit wrinkly. With yeah. some garlic. And then I add then I turned off the heat and added lobster and a little bit more butter just to kind of warm the lobster. Mm-hmm. Then just toss that with the linguine with some more olive oil, obviously, and parmesan. Now, what do you think? I know of course it's sacrilege to put fish with cheese. I don't think it is. And especially on some pastas, like you need it for that extra 
I guess, umami for lack, for, for the salt. Yes. I think, well, I often think about like different Greek dishes. There, I feel like there are baked fish dishes that have a lot of tomato and onion and um, a little feta or certainly shrimp. Yes, that's true. That's very true. I'm, you know, I'm not, I, if you're doing a Thai dish or with fish, like, please don't put cheese on it. But if it's a pasta, yeah, of course. Yeah. And with Parmesan, when it's, when it's grated or shaved like that, it's like, you can't even tell it's cheese. It's literally sprinkling MSG on it. Exactly. So we had that. It was a very good. Oh, I forgot also with red pepper flakes. I had put the red pepper flakes in when I put in the garlic. Oh, I was warming the oil. I am in heaven. Very tasty. So it was great. Delish. Congratulations. Thank you so much. So this week we have Keanu Moju. She is so wonderful. She's been in the food space for her whole life, it seems like. Exactly. I know. I, she's she's technically a producer, a culinary producer, and an on-screen personality. She's done so many tasty videos. You guys would recognize her. She's also the founder of Jaconi, which is a new culinary creative studio in LA's Arts District. She's just so incredible and like has accomplished so much. And yeah, Ari was texting me after being like, wait, how old is she? Because I feel like maybe we haven't done quite enough. <laughs> yeah, she was like, after our interview, she's like, oh, I have to go. Like, I'm going to go make this cooking video and, and live my life. And, and I was like, oh my God, if I was about to make a cooking video, I would be like, okay, guys, I can't talk. Like, I get so <laughs> nervous. She's a real pro. The breadth of what she cooks in these videos is so crazy. Like, can you imagine if somebody was like, okay, great, Ari, we're just going to do a croissant video. So just whatever recipe you want to use, go ahead and do it. It's like, yeah, no, sure. I would, I would. Definitely. Yeah, of course. No, it just comes so natural to her. And we had such, uh, yeah, an amazing conversation spanning so many topics. We know you guys will enjoy it and you'll really enjoy all of her videos. We have a lot to learn. I feel like everything that having a night wants to be Keanu Moju is. It's <laughs> it's a little bit true. Which at the end I was like, okay, so do you have any tips for us? And I think she thought I was joking, but I was totally serious. Yeah, I know. I was like, can I um just slip into your DMs all the time? All right, guys, listen in and please enjoy this great interview this week. Hi, Keanu. Hi, Sophie. Hi, Ari. Oh. We're so excited to be talking to you. We love all of your videos. And I was just saying before we press record, as three people who are used to looking at ourselves on screen, it's it's a real pleasure to talk to you because you have really nailed the food video production and kind of you make the best videos. When people like go into a, a wormhole of of videos, yes. like you are, that's your style, it's your format. I don't know. It's that's your wormhole. That's your warm. They're, they're going down your warm. Oh my goodness, I it's so nice to hear because I am one of those creatives where I either film something and never watch it again, or I'll never watch it after it's published and try to forget. Because you know, it's like sound of your own voice can also get odd at times. So I kind of forget what I filmed. It's probably a good thing. I mean, when we first started this podcast. I remember listening to our first episode and being like, we can't put this out in the world. I hate myself so much. We can't, we can't put it out. We can't put it out. And eventually you sort of get used to it, but it's true. It's just, what, what is that about the sound of your own voice? That's just like so painful. It's so, and you have such a nice voice too. Like as you were talking, there's some like familiarity in it and it's like very comforting, but it's not like a familiar where I can be like, Oh, you sound exactly like this celebrity, but it's like familiar enough where I'm like, I, I feel good right now. Thank Amazing. you. Hey, voiceover, people hiring voiceover artists, you hear that? <laughs> I'm available. Can we just talk a little bit about, first of all, how you got into making food videos, but also this particular format that I feel like, obviously we know you do a bunch of different formats, but the like over the head format that's just hands, that's no dialogue is really amazing. Like, did you come up with that? Was that something that you did with BuzzFeed? Were you doing it before? I don't know. Just, just, I'd love to hear everything about it. It's, I took, I think many people who work in food media have like a roundabout way. Cause it's not like a lawyer where it's like, do this, do that, do that. And you work in food. 
So for me, I've always been interested in cooking. I think from age seven, I started taking classes and never thought it was a possibility to be a career until after I finished my bachelor's undergraduate degree. So Mm -hmm. it was always like a hobby. Mm -hmm. And I studied video production in like high school and thought it was really cool and made some horribly weird satirical short films. (laughs) But I was never combining like my passion for video and my passion for food until I made the conscious decision of like, I want to pursue a career in publishing. Like that was like when the two and two came together and actually first made a cooking video. And that happened, I want to say two years after finishing college. So I graduated in 2013. In 2015, I was like, I want to do cooking videos because I had a blog. I did the photos. You know, finally, I was like, all right, let's do it. And I'm a nerd. I'm an academic. And the moment I want to do something, I'll do my self-study up until a certain point. But then I literally Google Masters Publishing London. <laughs> I wow. didn't be in LA anymore. So, And I did a semester abroad undergrad. And like everyone who went abroad was like the best moment of my life. So I was like, I want to do that for like the next two years rather than be here for mm-hmm. two years. And that was when I first made a cooking video. And that video I shot, funny enough, um, I did it in my dorm room. Oh my God. Using my cell phone. I was like in a little studio, um, like student housing. And we all had like our own little studio rooms, so had like a kitchenette. And I was missing home and I made an In-N-Out style burger. Oh. And that was the first cooking video I have ever shot. And coincidentally, when I graduated and was applying for a job at BuzzFeed for Tasty, they were like, submit a video. And it was the only video I had. So I submitted my dorm room cell phone <laughs> in and out burger video as, my, as part of my job application. That is amazing. Yeah, it's so- also probably a great video because they, clearly they fell in love with you as soon as they saw it. So probably if you had sent in a super, super stylized, you know, very sleek video, they would have been like, this isn't interesting. You know, it's so great that you were just doing it in your dorm room and being like, I really miss this food from home. So here guys, yeah, you know, I, it's, it's so funny. Cause when I think about, I haven't watched it in years, but if I think about how that video shot, whatever it is many degrees different from my style and approach to making content. There's something nice about it where I just like wanted to document food as I saw fit without all the training and things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still, I think, an effective format. And maybe I'll like revisit it to get some inspiration to, for now, maybe go back to my roots. Because you know, like when you're so like deep in a professional route, you almost can easily yeah. lose yourself. So maybe I can like regress to my college dorm room. <laughs> I think there's definitely something there. So you had your blog and then Tasty and BuzzFeed hired you. And then you go from like doing, I imagine, more writing to like producing more full time. So I got hired for Tasty straight out of grad school. So I interviewed remotely. I was still in London and it was like nighttime and I'm trying to like put like a lamp by my face. So when oh I'm doing interviews, that like they could see me. Um, so I literally went from grad school to moving to LA for that job. I did my master's thesis on the rise of food videos online. So it was very spot on with what Tasty was doing. I had applied and started working there when they're really on the cusp of like their biggest like pinnacle of success. Like when I started, their audience was like 75 million people. Like it was very much like, it was, I started Tasty when they were in their like prime. Wow. Um, it was a big jump from going as a grad student who literally spent months writing about this world right. to working in it. So it was a fast learning environment. I had to learn everything on the job. I knew the bones of publishing. I had to really learn 50% of the job yeah. while doing it as quickly as possible. Did you feel like there was any disillusion in going from studying it and thinking about this world to then suddenly being in it and being like, oh, is it all it's cracked up to be? Or were you like, damn, I'm living my dream? (laughs) I say all the time, from now working, 
I have a whole follow-up to my dissertation because there's so much I could have never anticipated. Um, part of it was just on the operational side of like how content is made because I learned in the very traditional background of like, you have a team and there's like different people doing different jobs and whatever. And at the time, Tasty was almost operating like a blog, which was like kind of the thing I tried to escape by like, I want to work professionally in media so I can just do one job really well, where um, they worked in this business model called full stack, meaning everything from the idea to the final video is done by one person, which is not the traditional model for a lot of industries. You usually have different people and they all have their kind of like an assembly line. Everyone has their part. We're right. in this. You thought of the recipe you wanted, you developed and tested that recipe, shot that video, edited that video, took the photos and the thumbnails. I did everything for my videos except for physically upload it to YouTube. It's very fast paced and I was very surprised because mind you, I interviewed remotely. So I never saw the office, I never saw the team. I didn't know how many people there were. Right. And I was so shocked this giant brand grew with such a tiny little team. Like I wow. think at the time it was like not even double like digits. Oh my God. It was just like a machine of, you know, a bunch of young, spirited, talented people busting their ass every day to make high quality content, which is already hard because it's very like the editing process is very precise. It was a lot to pick up. And honestly, at the beginning, I literally just called my mom crying when um, I was filming my first videos. And I felt like it took so long for my first project to get approved because it was like a note process. I was like, I'm never going to, like, how, how? Right. Um, but I, I got there and it's exhausting because you have to do that and repeat every day. Yeah. I mean, so how many so, videos would you be doing? Like, how long would it take start to finish once you got a, a recipe approved? We always had, like, um, quotas and those quotas fluctuated just depending month to month. So I remember when I started our quota, um, after my, after I got the groove of how to do the job, my quota was like eight videos a month. Um, mm-hmm. wow. wow. But that's a lot. Yeah. I also, I have to say though, that what you're talking about and just describing, um, the intensity of this process and the professionalism and the technique and the hours, that is a job. That is a, that is a full-time hard job. And we haven't even spoken about the fact that like, so is being a great chef or cook and recipe developer. And that like, so it's kind of two things at once. Cause usually it's like, Oh, you got a chef in there and then you've got people working the magic around them. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of, it's just crazy how, how much skill, I mean, did you, you didn't go to culinary school, did you? I mean, I know you started cooking not, when you were super yeah, young. Not as, um, as an adult, like I never went to like a culinary institute, but I, I'm glad I didn't because one, I do not do well in negative reinforcement environments. Like if somebody mm-hmm. was screaming at me all day, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to go home now. Like I yeah. just know how I became so delicate and I don't know either, but it's just, I would not thrive in such a learning environment, but it's also, um, I didn't have hopes or dreams in the restaurant life. Child me loved media. I loved watching Emerald live because he made cooking look like the most fun thing ever. Because I was drawn to the media side. Um, so culinary school never quite made sense for me because half of what we see as TV chefs are, especially nowadays, like home cooks or like entrepreneurs in some sort of like food venture um, rather than like professionally trained chefs. But at the same yeah. time, I feel like the breadth of what you cook is so extreme, right? So you'll make like a Kenyan rice dish and then you'll make like an incredible carrot cake or a wild, beautiful cheesecake. So rainbow croissant. Like how, I don't understand. Cause I I mean, (laughs) I feel like Ari and I are like, oh yeah, like we have a ton of breadth. And then I think about what you're cooking and I'm like, oh wait, we have no, no breadth whatsoever. So like baking in particular, because it's so specific, are you developing those recipes? Are you getting inspiration online? Like, I mean, how'd you get to be so talented? Teach us. (laughs) because I never went to formal culinary school, I learned from just like people, like the cooking classes I took were in people's homes in Berkeley. They'd have like cooking camps for kids. I learned from my grandmother and like bothering other people's moms and grandmas when they're cooking, just asking a lot of questions and 
am very determined when I want something. If I have an idea, I'm very visual and I want to physically manifest it into something tangible. So the moment I think of something or try something or see something, I'm like, I want to make that. And then just will toil my life away uh, to figure out how to do it. So Mm -hmm. it definitely comes with that. And there is a part of my brain that my parents had noted to me when I was younger that is very science-minded. My dad used to say that I should have been a scientist because I have a science brain. And I do approach recipe writing from a very academic way. I look at science when I'm building a recipe. I also look at history, anthropology, like it's research. I've never been that cook of like this feels, this smell, like it's so artsy. I was like an imposter in the art world because I'm very logical driven. I don't, I don't have like a feel that informs my decision making. It's just like research, numbers, (laughs) science. Amazing. So now you have Jaconi, which is a culinary studio, which feels like it makes so much sense for you to come from producing videos to opening up a studio where other people can come and and produce and, and make their own content, which I, I think is so great. So when did you open that up and is has stuff paused now because of COVID? Yeah, I opened Jaconi. Um, we officially opened last November. I learned about this concept of a kitchen studio when I was in my master's degree because outside of, you know, university study, um, we're really encouraged to take up what they call work placements, aka internships, to supplement our classes because the British education is very self-learn, learn by doing. is opposite of where I went for Syracuse, which was very lecture heavy. I only had class two days a week. I actually physically went to university. So a lot of my education was through self-study and in my workplacements. And that's when I learned about this concept of a kitchen studio, which felt great because I'm a person with many interests in the studio, got to work with all facets of the industry. They worked with the cookbook people. They worked with video. They even had the live events. And so it didn't pocket me. And like Tasty was very much was video only. And I still learned how to make books and all that stuff. So with having... Jaconi, I'm able to take all my skills and interests and kind of make have it make sense into one physical space. Um, and that's what drew me to it. It didn't allow me, because it's already a niche industry. And I always ha- was fearful of being a niche within a niche within a niche. Because then I'm mm-hmm. like, um, when do we get- <laughs> Now where do I go? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For me, it's a space where I don't have to ask permission anymore because what I've learned in the harshest way um, when I started working at Tasty is that there is such a lack of not only representation, but appetite for certain types of food. And for me, that um, learning came the moment my very first video was published. Because like I said, I spent my first, you know, weeks or months trying to learn how to do the job which was like already overwhelming because it is so much. And I had such pride and joy when my first video was like finally going to go up. And Mm -hmm. so I'm looking at it, I'm looking at the performance. And then when I scroll down to the comments, I got hit with a reality that I did not expect. Which was the realization that I was entering into a space that is traditionally very white and how people did not, a lot of the audience was not happy to see, this is when we're just doing hands, brown hands. And they're very vocal about it, commenting, go back to using white hands only. We don't like this. Is it just me or this person using too much self-tanner? Like all that. And I was just, holy shit. I busted my ass to learn how to do this damn job. And I was so proud. And then I got hit with the reality of, once again, just America and my industry. And that's when I really, you know, I felt a little disappointed in myself for not expecting it because mm. I've built a very sheltered life for myself. I have great friends. I live in these great communities living in London. It's like so metropolitan and friends from all over the world. I was checked out for of this part of American culture um, and coming from just being a student to what at the time was the biggest food network in the world. So I, the only video I ever made was on my private YouTube thing. And then I'm being put in front of an audience of yeah. 7 million people. 
And I didn't expect it. And it did not dissipate at all. And if not only worsened when we started dabbling in the on-camera stuff. Because then people, it's not just hating on hands. It's the person. And the first video I did was like a burger cooking a burger. Mm -hmm. Uh, And people were offended that I was there. They're very Jim Crow era-esque. Um, citing of violence, people even like citing lynching. Like it was really insane. Dark in an industry where I'm like, if food was not meant to be the most wholesome, <laughs> yeah. like friendly, happy go lucky, um, and it immediately upon the publishing my very first video, I learned that my job and the work I had to do would never just be and can never just be to learn how to do the job. This is an issue. And I looked at every other magazine and I remember the first time I saw brown hands that weren't mine. Um, and it was like on the New York Times. And that was so sad. I'm like, wow, I can notice yeah. if there's a hand on the internet that is not mine, like a hand on the whole right. wide web. It was like that. So with Chaconi, I'm able to create the content I want um, and, you know, actively grow with the editorial and audience who sees diversity, embraces, um, but also give people, you know, particularly for me of the African diaspora, an opportunity to see themselves represented Yes, in an authentic way. Because when I started going down the rabbit hole of what Black stories have been told in food, and then who gets to tell those stories, mm-hmm. people's stories have been told for them. Um, right. With a lot of inaccuracies or through a filtered lens. So... That's yeah. having this. There's like two halves of Jaconi. So there's Jaconi Studio, which is like um, kind of like our production. It's our physical space production company. Um, and there's Jaconi.co, which is our editorial website. Um, and that is currently soft launch. We soft launched it later this spring. And for me, it was always a goal. That's why I went to do my master's. because I wanted to learn how to eventually build my own thing. Right. Um, but it's really a space to celebrate um, the voices in the African diaspora. And so I didn't want it to have that traditional editorial gate. So there's a feature on the website where anyone can go up and upload their recipe. Um, And myself and the team that I work with will kind of serve as an art department, lend our professionalism and knowing how to make high quality video or photo to accompany their story to tell. So people are getting, you know, a chance to be part of that editorial narrative without having to like beg for permission or pitch to someone being like, this doesn't fit our mission right now. We don't know if our audience will care. Like, right. Right. Fuck that. Yeah. Yeah. And and to be able to tell their story the way they want to tell it. And you guys just kind of help out as opposed to, you know, white guys going around and traveling and being like, oh, look at these people and let's try what they're cooking. And then, you know, after the break, we'll be over here. You know, it's just a whole different experience of, of it's not just about seeing the food and experiencing the food, but it, it, you need to hear it be told and, and watch it be cooked by the makers, by the authors, you know, it's just a completely different thing. So that's a really, it's so important that you're doing that. Yeah. No, food travel is, I think, the naughtiest out of all the food media types. <laughs> It's, Will you yeah. talk about that a little bit? Because it's so, I mean, I think right now in this moment in particular, people are suddenly questioning the ways in which they consume other cultures' foods, the ways in which they cook other cultures' foods, mm-hmm. like what is quote unquote appropriate, what is not appropriate, what is appropriation, and what is actual pure enjoyment of another culture without saying, now I want it to be mine, just saying, wow, I'm so happy that this exists. I think there's so many layers to it, um, but there's like some proverb that I keep hearing floating around of whoever tells a story owns a story Um, and giving people the agency to have a hand in their own storytelling, um, I think is what's been missing. Uh, I saw a really great example of a food travel show and they went to the region of my peoples from my mother's side. So my mother's from Kenya. I'm first-generation American. So both my parents are from Africa, my mom from Kenya, my dad from Nigeria. And so I've been spending my summers in Kenya since I was seven years old. So I, and summers are long. It's like three to four months. So I grew up in both cultures and 
I feel so like I've been blind because I've gone there as, you know, visiting grandma and grandpa for summer. Like every day. it's like grandparents for the summer. And now as an adult, I'm seeing Kenya differently because I'm not seeing it through a child's lens anymore. And with particular, um, with the tribe my mother's from, which is a Maasai tribe, we have been like, I just keep saying they not geoed my people. Like we're <laughs> there next to the zebras and the lions right. making up, we make up 2% of the national population, but somehow have been like the face of the nation. And it's literally always like just fetishized and all this stuff. And there was this food travel show I saw and they went to the Maasai in Tanzania. Thank you, British people. Cause they drew like a line through our tribe. So we're 50, 50 between Kenya and Tanzania. And they were talking about the culinary traditions and they're like, Maasai people live on a diet, only meat and blood. (laughs) Yeah. Like years when everyone died when they were 30, like there's, (laughs) I'm like, you can't survive to a hundred like that anymore. Like it's just antiquated information and they're interviewing local people. So for the production of, I'm sure they're like, this is great. We're like, learning and showing people this knowledge but and I like I showed my mom this and she I I love showing my mom portrayals of like her people and things because she's just like oh oh my god this is absolutely and she'll just like basically like she might as well just write email to them because she just (laughs) always a thousand thoughts on it but and you see this happen you know with I'd say more culturally preserved groups all around the world. I've heard this happen in Southeast Asia where they're like, let's take a tour of someone's private home. Like, how is that important? Imagine if I went to Amsterdam and like, just like busted up in someone's house and started taking pictures in it. It'd be insane, but that's what happens, you know, in developing nations all the time. So people of these areas have been roped into tourism. Um, I think Kenya's GDP, like 60% is off of tourism. So the locals aren't telling the truth. They're telling what sells. There's an art to storytelling. Totally. And so when you have these, like, an, a group of middle-aged white dudes with their cameras and their, like, safari camp stuff, which is, like, a whole other issue for me, just because, like, when you look at local Kenyan tribes, all the clothes are so colorful, but somehow the outside people are, like, let's wear 80 shades of beige. Right. Like, <laughs> The animals can still see you. Like, we've been here for a while and we're fine. Like, why are we here? <laughs> but it's what they chose to do. So I'll let them keep doing it. So when these people approach, you know, local tribes, they speak to them in a particular way because they're just telling them what they want to hear. They know mm-hmm. why they're in their country. They know what they're there for. And they're giving them their money's worth. They're not getting the truth. And I always wonder, like, hmm, how would it be if you film that documentary using, you know, you can be an American or British production company, but if you hired a local crew, if you hired a local director, what stories would you get? I'm pretty sure there'd be a lot more accurate because I I don't believe in the word authentic really. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm talking about like leather, (laughs) like it's okay, (laughs) but not the people, but you're not getting real stories. Um, You're just getting the fairy tales that they're trying to sell when, depending on who's asking the questions, who's behind the camera. It's a bit sad. It's like almost like people do food travel with the intent of affirming what they already know, not to learn new things. Well, it was so, I was in, um, I was shooting a short film in Singapore last summer and had the most incredible time. And my, my boyfriend came and met me there. And then we went to Thailand for a few days and we were just laughing about this idea of how everybody's like, yeah, man, I'm just so into street food in Thailand. And it's like, that's not street food. Those are just restaurants. They just look different from the restaurants where you come from. Yeah. But this thing of like, yeah, I just want to eat in like a dirty, like grimy little hole in the wall. And it's like, that is just a person cooking food that Thai people are going to eat. Like it's, it, I think right. it's fetishizing it. And yeah. Exactly. This fetishization and this thing of it's, it's, it's this weird thing of pretending like I'm so into the culture, but actually holding it at such a distance. Mm-hmm. And it's between tourism and traveling. I, I can't remember where I learned this. And I wish I could. But um, once I learned the definition between being a tourist and a traveler, it, it made it all so clear. A tourist is like, you have your list. I want to see this. I want that. 
you're there to like reaffirm what you know and maybe physically see what you know. Where traveling is an experience where you're open. You want to see how another culture lives. And there's no way you would know that sitting in your house. That's why you're there. I never got the point of going somewhere just to do what you already expect. Like, where is the joy in that? Like, what are you really experiencing? Um, and I think travel shows really err in the voice of tourism rather than in the voice of traveling. I, I must say that, you know, now when we're all stuck at home and unable to travel and experience different culture and people, one of the best things I think you can do and the best ways to share culture and experience is to try and cook someone else's food and just to bring it back to Jaconi and also just food video production. It's, I think more, I mean, more people now are cooking than ever, ever before it seems at home because they have to. And to have the access to videos of this high quality and I don't know, recipes and looking, searching for it and having to order ingredients that they can't find at their local grocery store. is just a, a really great way to kind of get out of your own bubble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it kind of, airs on how we package information and how we share information. Um, With media and someone who's trying to appeal to a wide audience, you'll never, I don't know how you can really successfully, you know, teach culture through the lens of food when you're also trying to teach chemistry and teach this and also hype a chef restaurant. Like, There's so many different jobs and in a weird way, I'm curious to how we got here as people where it used to be early societies were like specialty. I came to this person for this thing and this person for that thing. But then we kind of got in this thing of like, I want it all in one. And I think you can never do anything justice if you're trying to ever do all in one because you'll always just skim. You, You can only ever provide cliff notes. Um, What I want to do with Jaconi is, as you said, our slogan is culture through the lens of food. Um, I love baking and I love science and all that, but I'm not going to be writing um, or making how to make perfect croissant on Jaconi because it's just aired and all the technique, whatever. And I'm not going to go reiterate once again, French culture, all that stuff. So I have no use to put that on that space. Totally. Uh, if we could kind of allow spaces to be a bit more niche, I think it'll bring more value to us than a space that is broad and shallow. Um, It's like buying your fish from the fishmonger and not from Whole Foods. Yep. Literally R is in my like favorite topic is being like, I just want to live in a village. (laughs) Exactly. A butcher and a fisher. Yeah. Going back just like a second back to different cultures, how was being in London and starting a California taco pop-up? Because I was thinking about like, so my boyfriend is English and he came to- My boyfriend's husband. Oh, sorry. Sorry. He's my husband now. just got married. But when we, we just got married like a month ago. Um, But when, in November, he came to LA with me and it was just so fun to be there with him because he was clearly like- what is this? Like, I don't understand. Well, I mean, so can I'm- I just say, how, I mean, I haven't spent as much time in London as you guys have, but like my experience there, like the Mexican food there is like bad, right? It's just like, like generally not great. Right. So I, when I was in London, this was in, I started my grad degree in 2015. Uh-huh. There was within my area, and I live central, like London, like Shoreditch area. There was one chain of Mexican food, um, and there was, like, uh, I guess, like, a stall. Because they have all these, like, street food markets. So they're not, like, traveling. Like, they're there. They can, like, close their gate. Like, it's just kind of like a pop-up market, but one of those. And there was one that did tacos. Mm -hmm. And the chain was bad. It was bad. (laughs) Not good at all. Um, and it's just so funny the way British people pronounce it because they say taco. Oh, yeah. Taco. Taco. Like, what the fuck are yeah. you saying? <laughs> um, and the pop-up was good, uh, but it was expensive. Like, I'm talking about, because in America, I think if you live in an area with good Mexican food, you know there's, like, 
a variance in tortilla size. There's the street mm-hmm. tacos, which are like the little guys are like three inch, four inch diameter. And then there's like the regular taco, which are five, six inch diameter. And these people were selling the three inch ones for like five pounds of pop. So like $7 for a tiny taco for one. No. Wow. That's and the British horrible. just didn't know what was up. <laughs> I was raging. And they're like, and it is just not fly for me. And I have a tendency of doing too much. And instead of taking the satisfaction of making my own tacos at home, I was like, I'm going to start a taco pop-up. Uh, and I did <laughs> so much fun because I collaborated with the skills of different students from university because I went to art university. So mm-hmm. one of the, um, I think animation students like did graphic design for our menus um, or, or like our logo. And then like one of my master's degree, who's like an advertising thing, she did like her menu design. And like, so, and I, because I'm an American, I couldn't own a business there, but I could mm-hmm. be an employee of it because I'm a student visa, you can work. Um, so I had to like get a friend from college to like own the business because I couldn't. Um, oh so God. I could be an employee of it. And we started this like little pop-up. So like I wrote the menu and I did the photography and we had like Instagram still up, um, like all that stuff. And it was great. And I found a pub in my neighborhood in Islington that had two levels. So they had their main pub level and on the second level for rental. And I had a dining room and a commercial kitchen for rent. So I rented it and was doing a one night only pop-up. And did all the planning. I was so happy. It was like a great menu. The menu is based off of like the Bay Area where I'm from. So each, mm-hmm. this is so corny as I recap it. Taco <laughs> was like named after a different neighborhood in the Bay and kind of modeled after cuisine style. I knew that. So it was like the Oakland taco. And it was like kind of like Vietnamese flavor because that's when I first had Vietnamese food. It was like a San Jose taco, which kind of tasted like a Cubano. Like it just, there were like six different items. And I was like filling it and I tested it and it was so good. And then like the marketing and I was like, oh fuck, who's going to come? I only have like 10 friends in London. Like <laughs> I don't British people are very hard to make friends with. Um, and I panicked and I messaged my best friend, Nikki, who at the time who has a PR background was living in Australia. And I was like, Nikki, can you help me do PR for my pop-up here in London all the way from Australia? Yeah. And she was like, okay. And so she like made a press release and sent it's like different London media. And these two girls who um, are the writers, I maybe still currently for a really popular blog called Secret London. They tell you all the cool, like all the cool things to do in London. They showed up. And I was like, oh, oh my shit. God. like we got media here. And my friends came through, they pulled up because they brought coworkers and whatever. So it was like packed. It was busy. And I'm like, all right that's not my problem anymore because half my ingredients I ordered didn't arrive because it's no. like making tacos. So I had to order like all the specialty Mexican stuff. that's not common to find in London and only half my stuff arrived. So where I thought the problem was going to be, nobody showed up. Too many people showed up and I only had like half the menu and we didn't get, we didn't have enough time and there were not enough of us to like have to like redact and like rewrite the menu before people came. So people are ordering and like only half the things are on the taco. And I'm like, and I swear to God, like, I blacked out. I know I remember nothing. <laughs> my bare hand was, like, flipping tortillas on the griddle. Like, I oh, my God. Festers, and, like, I feel no pain. And yeah. just churned out. Adrenaline. And after the pop-up was over, cried harder than I ever had before. Because I thought it was just an utter disaster. And it was horrible. And I was like, I can never. Like, it felt like such a failure on all fronts. Um, and went back to the pub the very next day, literally just like my head down because I had forgotten something. I think it was like my computer charger, like something I had to go back for. Uh, and the owner, pub owner, like I didn't want to look at him because I was like, I failed. Like I came in talking to the game and like fell flat. And he was like, so how'd the pop-up go? And I was like, asshole. I'm like, oh, uh. it was... And before I could answer, he was like, you guys should do it again because we made a lot of money that night. So what I didn't know being locked up in the kitchen is that because our kitchen was like slow 
everyone went downstairs to the pub while waiting. And we did a Taco Tuesday. They're never busy on a Tuesday. So they were making money. So I'm upstairs wanting to cry my eyes out. And they're having the time of their life. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> on the ground floor. And she's like, we're never busy on Tuesdays. How would you like to take over our main kitchen in the pub and come and do this every Tuesday? And so I had a comeback moment. And it was never crazy like that again. We got our ingredients. And I did it until older. I was bored of it. That's an incredible story. It also sounds like a film. It was a hot You know? <laughs> it's that like movie, movie. It's, it's that, that movie like, Chef, but like instead you're in London making tacos. Isn't that what he does? Or, just he like, like, or like you're so sad and then like you truck. open up the magazine and like it, it was a hit. <laughs> and the girls from the blog, they loved it because right. my business partner has like a really attractive like German friend and he sent them over just to like keep them happy and like keep them entertained. And they got all the food first and whatever. And they put us in an article the next week, top pop-ups you have to go to in London and listed my pop-up as number one. And I was just like, how? <laughs> like, wait, my dissertation. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, I'm like, I'm going to go back to writing this damn paper. Jeez. <laughs> so as, I mean, it sounds, first of all, it just sounds, I just love that like you put your mind to something, then you just execute it. No questions asked. Like you just make it happen, which is so incredible. But because you're clearly so busy and like have so much on your plate, do you still like to cook for yourself? Like, do you host dinner parties? Do you like to cook for other people? Or is it just like a busman's holiday for you at this point? I would say I find a lot more joy in cooking for other people than for me even though I'm incredibly like picky, like if I catch a craving, I want it either from a particular place or a particular way, yes. or a particular way I'm going to make it for myself because like I'm, I get hangry and I'm a monster and I don't care how mm-hmm. someone tries, it's going to be wrong. So yeah. I, I cook for myself in that way when it's cravings, but when I really get the most creative and make like really dope shit is when it's for other people. Um, and so before lockdown, I used to have a monthly dinner party and I'd pick a theme. I love a good theme. And so do we. The theme is to the food, to the outfit, because I think I have an equal love for fashion as I do food. And I have building a healthy collection of satin jumpsuits and they only get worn in the house. They're not for public. Ari and I are literally like, are you our third? Like, are you the third (laughs) part of our triangle? (laughs) <laughs> what is that? You're the same person. <laughs> They're the best like things silk ever. pajama parties. Yeah. Yes. Legal so just like moving through your home with like these like long flowy trousers. Yes. The best. Like, I don't need to be glamorous outside. The world is dirty and I want my clothes to stay clean. Mm-hmm. I them at home. Um, I pick these themes um, and send out an invitation every month and invite usually eight to 10 friends. That's how many people my table can fit um, and cook off of that. And I really, especially when I was working at Tasty, where it was never in my editorial thing to cook the way I cook. I was cooking under the guise of a brand, their voice, their lens. Um, a couple mm-hmm. times I got to sneak something in there, uh, but mostly it just wasn't cooking like me. And I started panicking that I was going to lose my identity and my lens on food if I didn't make a conscious effort to, you know, keep that up. It's like, I feel like it, you know, cooking is like any other craft you have to practice. Um, and I wasn't practicing and exercising a part of my creativity um, as far as exploring the flavors I like and the way I like to make food. So I had this dinner party monthly. Um, and I think my favorite one I did was like East meets East. And it was um, a... Fusion, which is a word that has been dirtied for no reason. I watched the fusion of East African and Southeast Asian food. And it was just like so much fun of, because when you, with these themes, what I got to do in my research process is look at ingredients and see how one ingredient really has so many different uses in different cultures. So I can take turmeric and see of like how we use it in Kenya, but then see how it's used in Malaysia as well find that common ground and build a dish off of it. Like, so it's not like random and trying to like put like soy sauce in my cakes. It's not happening. But so I try to like bridge the commonality rather than trying to like 
play with odd pairings. Um, I think I kudos to the food people who can discover new pairings. That's not me. I like finding what we have in common between cultures and learning from that. At least right now, that's like my current gym. Who knows what I'll be doing in 10 years. But right now I'm like, what are we all doing? What are we all using? I'm pulling inspiration from that because when you get nerdy and look at ingredients and how most ingredients have a single origin and have taken these journeys across the globe, Mm -hmm. you honestly, that's like the best inspiration you ever need of like, I buy tomatoes every week. I make the same thing with it. Pretty sure they have tomatoes in Malawi. Let's see what they're doing. It's it's really just fun. I like what I do. I have what I do. Uh, And I get embarrassingly giddy when I make something new and it doesn't suck. (laughs) Yeah. When I was traveling right before COVID, I wasn't cooking much. I maybe would make, if I had an Airbnb, would make breakfast because I get so hangry and I can't function without breakfast. So it needed to happen at home. I couldn't go out for breakfast, mm-hmm. um, but I wasn't like cooking. You know, breakfast, right. like you just throw it together. You know what you're doing. You can do it with your eyes shut. But when I came back home to LA and I was like traveling for a month and I hadn't like made a meal meal, yeah. I almost set my kitchen on fire. Like I, the kitchen towel was a blazing. I was burning my hand and I was like, wow, this is what one month of not cooking has done to me. Yes. I should <laughs> Should never take a long break like that again. It's like the opposite of riding a bike. It's like you don't remember anything. No, I know that's happened to me. How do I make pasta? COVID. Yeah, Yeah, I'm like, "Mm, I probably should not burn my house in the middle of a stay-at-home order. So that's practice. Yeah, (laughs) that'd be bad. God, this has been so much fun and so amazing. Oh, thank you. I I just like talking about food. So much fun. Same. It's like, wow, I've been dealing with food pretty much since I was bored and somehow have not become bored of it yet. It is the one thing that I think can, it's the most tangible way to understand people. Um, yes. But I kind of push against a cliche of like, if you break bread together, it's just a gateway. It's an entry point. It's a hello. It's a greeting. Because um, totally. it makes people comfortable, but it is definitely, I think, a first step in mm. people limiting ignorance against other cultures. Um, it's not the end all be all, but it's a no. delicious way to start. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. At least it tastes good. Yeah. <laughs> wow. 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 We wow. She is so great. We are really, you know what? We're trying our best. We're, we're trying our best. We're not quite up to Keanu's level, but we're hoping someday we will be. Yeah. But just, okay. uh, I don't know, what a luminous, wonderful being. I'm so glad that we got to talk to her. Me so too. cool. Maybe it's, we can go eat tacos with her when we're in LA. Oh my God. I would volunteer to be her sous chef at a, t- a taco pop-up any day. Thank you, Colin. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, Thank you Sophie. Thank, Thank you. you, Ari. Thank you, Keanu. Thank you, Jake, for helping us figure out our scheduling with Keanu. We know she has a very busy schedule for good reason. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you guys on Chip Hour next Wednesday. We would tell you guys to go out and throw a dinner party, but please don't do that. Or, or do it um, according to all of the CDC guidelines and be incredibly cautious. And don't tag us. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to be like, send us pics. You're right. <laughs> if it goes well, send us pics. Okay, see you guys next week.